Welcome to week two of church history. Uh, just not, I'm not going to do really do a review of last week, but just kind of bring everyone up to speed because we have a much bigger crowd this morning. But um, we're doing a series on church history. It's six weeks. We're in week two, and we're looking at the growth of the early church, not just the growth, but we're looking at the early church pretty much from sort of New Testament times, but I'm not really going to focus too much on the book of Acts itself. Uh, I'm going to kind of start after that, so we'll kind of look at the most of our time will be spent in 100, 200, all the way up until 300 AD, and, and then, uh, Lord willing, the next time we'll, we'll pick up there. Um, how many people were here when Matt did church history last? A few people? Yeah, good. Um, so someone asked, why we didn't pick up where Matt left off, uh, and I apologize that I didn't pick up where he left off. So, but there's enough new people. I think it's it's worth starting over in early church because I know he did that. Uh, when did he do that? Does anybody remember? Was that within the last couple of years? It's been a while. Um. Well, <clears throat> before we get started, let me pray. Father, once again, we come before you and we just uh, give you praise for the fact that uh, you are sovereign. You are a God who uh, works in and through history. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would just help us, give us discernment as we look at these events. And Lord, help us to learn, help us to be uh, people that trust in your providential hand, and, and, and may this encourage us and, and strengthen us. I, I hope that this study does encourage us and, and give us uh, just a desire to be about uh, the growth of your church. Uh, Lord, I pray that um, you would just be exalted in all that we consider this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> if you'll remember uh, last week... Um, we looked at basically want study church history, and one of the things that we looked at was three convictions of a Christian historian, um, and those are basically that God is in control, that God works, he's, and that we called it God's providence, but God basically is working through history. Um, he ordains all things that comes to pass. Uh, secondly, does anybody remember the second one? I know it's been a while. So God works, God works with purpose. Uh, in other words, it's not just random. God has a plan that he's fulfilling. And then thirdly, they're all kind of related. The third thing was that he's working toward an end. There is an end in sight. And, and there are goals as he's moving along. <clears throat> Remember we looked at last week kind of the two key focus points in the New Testament or in the Bible as a whole really is the birth of Christ the first coming of Christ, and then all that's related to that, uh, he's, you know, he comes, he dies on the cross, he's resurrected, and then he establishes the church, and then we're moving toward another event, the second coming of Christ. So these two grand events in history uh, is what we were looking at. Um, we're going to see uh, really those convictions played out this morning as we look at the first thing is the fullness of time that God is orchestrating history in such a way, and we're really going to focus on 
the growth of the early church, but combined in that is the fact that Jesus came and he establishes the church. We're going to be looking at Acts some, uh, but really we're kind of the first part of your outline. Let me pull that up so I can look at that too, is the fullness of time. What does that mean? When Paul writes in Galatians, by the way, before I get to Galatians, uh, I, I'm going to have you open up in your Bibles. Uh, you probably want your, your Bibles open during this class in, to a unique place, and that's the book of maps, the very end of your Bible, uh, <laughs> because that will be very helpful to you. Uh, if, if I were more prepared, I would have figured out a way to get maps up here, um, but unfortunately I didn't do that. But if you look at the back, particularly if you have, um, I have an ESV Bible, and in mine it's map 11, the spread of Christianity in the first two centuries, uh, that map would probably be most helpful. So, Paul writes in Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And really, we're kind of keying in on the phrase, the fullness of time. Obviously, Paul is talking more, I don't think this verse just refers to what we're going to talk about. I think there's more to it than this, but there's certainly, um, this would be included in the fullness of time. Um, <clears throat> I mentioned to you last week that my primary source is uh, Gonzalez's The Story of Christianity, uh, Volume 1. Uh, this week, I, I used also Everett Ferguson's um, backgrounds to early Christianity. Um, but Gonzalez writes this, he said, The early Christians did not believe that the time and place in the, uh, of the birth of Jesus had been left to chance. On the contrary... They saw the hand of God preparing the advent of Jesus in all events prior to the birth and in all the historical circumstances around it. The same could be said about the birth of the church, which, which resulted from the work of Jesus. So there is this idea in the fullness of time that at the right time, God had prepared all things historically. Uh, and again, I don't think that's just limited to what we're going to look at uh, but, but for our purposes in the early church, um, we're going to see that there were some key things that had happened that made the spread of the early church, the spread of Christianity, uh, uh, more, easy, more easy or more smooth um, in, it, in the way it spread out and the way it grew. So the first thing in the fullness of time is, point number one on your outline, is Hellenism produced cultural cohesion. Um, and sorry if, if, my, if the words that I'm using might not be the best, but I'm trying to make all of them work together. Uh, so pretty much what this is saying is under Hellenism, you remember Alexander the Great. Uh, so if you're looking at your map, does everybody have a map? If you're looking at your map, Alexander the Great had conquered all of uh, the Mediterranean basin. I mean, uh, he came in and, and when he conquered this whole region... Um, he brought in a cohesiveness uh, of culture. And, and again, Everett in his book, uh, most of what I have here is from Everett's book, Backgrounds of Early Christianity. Some things that are crucial and key to the development of Christianity as a religion. Uh, first of all, Alexander established one currency. So you have all of these 
you think of the, this whole area, so you have the Mediterranean Sea and then you have this area all around it, and, and this is divided up into different regions and, and different groups of people. Well, when, when Alexander conquered all of this, he brings a unity to all of it. And he does this, uh, first of all, by establishing a currency. Well, what does currency do? Um, currency makes um, trade, economics, makes all that unifies the people in, a, in the way they operate, in the way they work with one another. They're selling, they're trading, they're, they're doing things together economically. Um, also, the framework of society began to become centered around the polis or the city. So now you have these centers or cities where all of Greek life was played out. You have politics, you have, um, you have theater, you have all of these things that are centered in the city. So the key to the Greek socioeconomic life was the city. Uh, you would have the gymnasium, and later under Rome you'd have the amphitheater. You have key parts that are brought into the city that make... Uh, people start to gravitate more toward the city. Well, what does that do? Well, that creates more of a cultural unity or a cohesiveness. Thirdly, <clears throat> probably most importantly, is a common language. Um, so now you have this entire region which would have had a lot of different languages, a lot of different dialects. Now there is a common language, and that is Greek. You have a common education uh, and a common Greek philosophy. And so you have this approach to life. So pretty much all of life now under Alexander the Great and, and really the Greeks, uh, you have this uni uh, unified uh, culture. What does that do? Really the impact of that, uh, and this is another point in your outline, is Hellenistic Judaism. This is the real impact, I think, that Hellenism had on the spread of the early church, was this thing called Hellenistic Judaism. And, and to kind of explain this, you have to think back a little bit further into the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you had two exiles, right? You had the Babylonian, you had the Assyrian exiles. Well, during these exiles, you had Jews who were spread out. Uh, not all over the, the Mediterranean basin, but, but what you had is you now Jews have left Israel. They've left um, Jerusalem, and they're, they've moved to different, different areas. Well, after the deportation of the Jews, they continued to spread out. So now you have Jews. Really, by the time of Jesus, you do have Jews all over uh, this map, if you're looking at that map. Um, so really, you have Jews in Africa, you have Jews in modern-day uh, Italy, you have Jews all, really in, in Asia Minor, according to this map. Uh, there's Jews really spread out all over. You also have Jews in Syria, in Armenia, in Arabia. You have Jews really spread all over the map. If you look at, or you'll recall in Acts 2, um, there's a description of all of the Jews that had come together for Pentecost or for um, the, the Festival of, of Weeks. So you have all these Jews, and, and all of the, the areas that are mentioned come from all over this map, both west, south, and east of this narrow strip of land. You have all of these Jews that are coming in. Well, these Jews lived outside of Israel, 
And uh, they were being assimilated into the cultures in which they lived. Well, now they're, it's a common language, they're speaking Greek. A lot of them are losing the ability to really um, read and communicate in Hebrew. And so you have this situation where you have these Jews who are being faithful. Uh, and so what developed was the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, so now you have, uh, actually I missed a point, I need to back up, uh, I missed synagogues. So what happened, this happened, actually began during the Babylonian exile, synagogues started to develop because now you have these Jews who aren't in Jerusalem and they're away from the temple, so what they do is they establish synagogues to continue to worship God. And so, uh, now I'm going to go back to the synagogues, so both of these things combined the impact that these two things had with the Hellenistic Jews were they were primarily Greek-speaking, although they would probably speak other languages, and they might know Hebrew too, but their everyday language was probably Greek, and so they were more comfortable with the Septuagint than they were with the Hebrew Old Testament. They were also worshiping in synagogues. Uh, by the way, there is a lot of overlap and how the church and the early church um, uh, had practiced their services with the synagogues. Uh, in the synagogue, you really had two things. You had prayer and the reading of Scripture, uh, and, and a lot of times you would have a commentary. And you're gonna see, you'll see this in the New Testament. Um, oh, there was a, there's an instance in Acts, I don't remember exactly where it is. Paul goes into the synagogue. I remember, this is the first place Paul would go, Right? When Paul traveled around on his missionary journeys, he went first to the synagogues. Uh, and then, so what would happen is he would go into a synagogue, they would have a time of prayer, they would have a time of scripture reading, and then a lot of times if there was a, tra uh, a traveling, um, someone like Paul, um, they would ask if they wanted to give a commentary. And that's a lot of times Paul would take advantage of that, or most of the time Paul would take advantage of that. And so that's the context. Well, what did this do for the church. <clears throat> well, um, it gives the church the ability, um, once it starts to grow, as we saw with Paul, there is the ability to move around. There was a place to go. Again, Paul and, and probably the other apostles would first go to the synagogues before they went anywhere else. Um, and so you have this as really one of the key things that Hellenism does for the spread of Christianity. But it did another thing, and this is the, uh, do you have this in your notes? Yes, third point under Hellenistic Judaism. Both the synagogues and the Septuagint popularized the Jewish faith. So, <clears throat> now you have Jews living among Gentiles all over, essentially, the world at this point. And they're interacting, they're doing commerce, they're living life with Gentiles even though they might have been separate in the synagogue, but what, you, what happens is, as a result of the synagogues and the Septuagint, now you have Gentiles learning about the Jewish faith, and they were becoming convinced of the Jewish faith. And this is a group of people in the New Testament known as God-fearers. Um, <clears throat> we have some examples of that. You see that in the book of Acts. Uh, for example, the Ethiopian eunuch was a God-fearer. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 was a God-fearer. These were Gentiles who had um, 
I guess, maybe converted to Judaism. Um, they were still separate in a sense, but for all intents and purposes, they were Gentile believers at that point, and they were called God-fearers. Well, obviously, this is fertile soil for the apostles. Um, you have um, all of these Jews and Gentiles who have a background, and you see um, the early church, uh, when the, the apostles first go out, they don't have to do or they establish churches. A lot of these churches were very familiar with the Old Testament, even the, the Gentiles in there, because they were God-fearers. Um, <clears throat> but that does change. Uh, and you do see the church start to grow among Gentiles who don't have a background in the Old Testament. And, and uh, obviously those churches have a, a, a different approach to the training. And really in, the, in what you're going to see in the early church, we'll get to this uh, at some point, uh, you see uh, the early church fathers having a time period for, for people before they baptized them after they were converted. And they would uh, basically teach them the Christian faith uh, a lot of times it was for a period of three years before they were baptized. Uh, and that was because they were coming out of a background that wasn't familiar with the Christian teachings in the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> if you would, you can just quickly, I have Acts chapter 13. It's just an example of, of what we're talking about. chapter 13, verse 13, it says, <clears throat> Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. This is the, actually, this is the passage I was thinking of. I don't know why I didn't, I forgot I had this in my notes. Uh, the, uh, and they sat down. After the reading of the law and, and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so Paul stood up and motioned with his hand. And then he goes on to basically preach the gospel. Again, this was a common practice for especially Paul, uh, but the early church. So you have the synagogues, you have the Greek language, um, you have the, the Septuagint and the God-fearers all provided a platform for the early church to spread, and that was largely related to Greek culture influence or Hellenism. Secondly, you have uh, the Roman rule. So Rome comes in and pretty much conquers, and I'm leaving out a ton of history here, uh, but basically Rome comes in and conquers the region, and by 63 B.C., Roman is, Rome is in, in, in control. What this does is it produced a stability in the region. Uh, after the death of Alexander, um, again, I'm, make, I'm making this really simple, but there were two kind of warring factions, one in the south, one in the north, and they so and and if you look at your map, go back to your map. Um, so you, if you look at, especially if you're looking at the same map I am, the spread of Christianity in the first two centuries, you have this strip of 
basically Israel. And if you look at this, Israel was the, at that time, really the center of the world. If you wanted to really travel anywhere, you had to go through Palestine. You had to go through this area. Whether you were going by the Mediterranean Sea or you were traveling in, in roads from, from South or, or North Africa and you're wanting to go East or North, you're traveling through this, this area. And so really it's a political football. Uh, people are fighting for this land. And so you had the Ptolemies and the uh, Seleucids who are fighting to take control uh, so there's real, there's, it's not stable by any stretch of the imagination after Alexander dies. Uh, well, Rome comes in and it produces a stability. Um, uh, there's a Latin phrase, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Um, that's what Rome produced. So now, not only did you have this cultural cohesion, well, now you have this political and economic stability. So, what this does for the early church is primarily it makes travel much more easy. Um, before traveling, you had bandits. Whether you were going by the Mediterranean Sea or you were traveling by land, uh, because of the instability, the lack of, of a unified control at this point, uh, there were a lot, it was dangerous to travel. Well, Rome has guards, they build roads, they have guards who are posted, they have a legion stationed throughout Roman, the Roman Empire. And so that, again, just produces the ability for people to move about freely. Um, so that's Roman rule produce, produces stability, peace and stability. Thirdly, so really, um, this is... This is the situation that you, you have. You have, before I get to the third one, you have this cultural cohesiveness uh, that the Greek culture brought. Then you have this political and economic stability. Uh, so there's safety, there's peace. Uh, things are starting to flourish. Things are starting to grow. Uh, and you can just imagine the, the safety and travel issue if you're trying to trade or if you're trying to uh, move goods, especially with bandits or, you know, you're going to have, even if you went by the Mediterranean Sea, there were pirates who would stop ships and basically steal everything they had. Um, now you have this cultural cohesiveness and then you have the, the political and economic stability. And these two things brought about... Uh, a situation where uh, the church really could thrive and, and it spread, but there was one thing that really uh, caused the church to spread, and that is the third thing we're going to look at, the Greco-Roman religious context. And it produced the opposite of those two things. It produced an uncertainty and discontentment. Uh, and then, again, I'm, I'm lumping here philosophy in with the... Greco-Roman religious context, uh, because for the Greeks, philosophy was a religion. Uh, it was a way of life. So you had in this context, um, by the way, I have a quote that I, I wanted to read here. Uh, Ferguson in his book points out that Rome was a borrower culturally and religiously. In other words, 
Rome had the ability when it conquered to absorb that culture, and that's exactly what it did religiously. So you had these Greek gods that were given Roman names, and then you had the Roman gods. So there was this real uncertainty religious, religiously, I guess. Um, you had the philosophers. So you had Socrates, you had Plato, you had all these guys, Aristotle. Uh, you had Epicureanism, Stoicism. You had, a, I mean, if you look at Everett's book, he has a list that's like a mile long of different philosophies and religions. Um, so you had all of these things. You had the mystery religions. Um, so you had religions that came down or came from um, down up from Egypt. Uh, which was basically the uh, mystery religion of, of the worship of the goddess Isis. And on top of that, you had emperor worship. Rome started to deify the Caesars, uh, and by the time you get to Augustus, usually before Augustus, the Roman rulers were deified after they died. Augustus deified himself, uh, so basically, now you have a situation where, under the time of Jesus in the early church, you had to worship the living emperor. So, what did this do? Well, you had these uh, really these warring sects and these uh, rival faiths that are all competing, um, and it was just this hodgepodge of religious thought and beliefs. Um, but the one thing that tied it all together was the imperial cult, the worship of the emperor. Because um, that was the one thing that Rome required. You could, and you see the early church getting in trouble for this. So uh, in the early church, because Christianity is exclusive, they wouldn't worship any foreign god. Uh, and that's what caused a lot of the problems, which we'll see in the coming weeks. So beneath the stability... Uh, beneath uh, the peace, beneath the uh, cultural cohesiveness is this real apprehensiveness religiously. People are, people are searching. They're not satisfied with the religious situation. Um, uh, John Stott describes this situation this way. He says, the old mythological gods of Greece and Rome were losing their hold on the common people so that the hearts and minds of men everywhere were hungry for a religion that was real and satisfying. Uh, Ferguson writes this, Popular religion was unable to hold the conviction of the educated and philosophy was unable to reach the masses. Christianity successfully integrated a religious faith with a worldview and pattern of life that were philosophically defensible. So this is... Um, what we're calling in our notes the fullness of time. So uh, these are the historical situations that really caused the growth of the church to explode when it did. Uh, and I'm, again, I'm not denying the power of the Holy Spirit. I, that obviously is the case. Uh, but the fullness of time, what we're talking about is that God is orchestrating events so that when the church begins to grow, it grows quickly. And we're going to see some other elements of that too. So let's look at the spread of the church. <clears throat> Again, we're, we're focused primarily on the first couple of centuries. And I'm, I'm not going to go into detail on the whole book of Acts. We're going to kind of do an overview. But um, I think at one point Matt did 
uh, series in church history on the book of Acts, but we're, we're not going to do that. I'm just going to hit some of the highlights and some of the trends that we see in Acts. Uh, but you'll recall Matthew 28:18 uh, says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, uh, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, verse, I'm reading through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Matthew gives us at the end the great commission given by Jesus. Uh, Acts 1.8 gives us uh, another glimpse or another part of that. So this is after Jesus' resurrection. The disciples are gathered together in Jerusalem, and Jesus appears to them. And verse 8 says this, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the into the end of the earth. So it's clear that Jesus' intention, Jesus' intention for the church is that it would not stay in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 28, you're to go to all the nations. Um, and then in, in Acts 1.8, you know, it starts in Jerusalem, but notice there's a progression. You're going to go start in Jerusalem and you're going to go to all of Judea and Samaria, the areas right around Jerusalem, and then you're going to go to the end of the earth. And that's what we see, that's sort of an outline for the book of Acts. Uh, you'll recall Jesus said, um, and at one point in his ministry, I will build my church, and we see that happening uh, in the early church. Uh, what I want to look at is uh, the spread of the church uh, and, and I want to look specifically at three ways the church spreads. They're sort of all the same thing, but it's helpful, at least for me, to break it up this way. First of all, you see the church spreading ethnically. Uh, may, maybe a better way to put that would be growing, but because I was trying to be consistent, um, I'm going to leave it as spreads. But it spreads ethnically. Um, what you see early in the book of Acts is that Christianity is primarily Jewish. Uh, in fact, uh, early in church history regarding the government, m a lot of the rulers saw Christianity as a Jewish sect. And so um, it began more as a Jewish, um, with Jewish believers. Um, let me see if I have any. Yeah, there's a, again, there's a pattern in the book of Acts. And you see this happening over and over and over. Y'all know what the pattern is? What happens to the church? They preach the gospel. Persecution. Then what happens after that? They spread out. And what do they do when they spread out? They preach the gospel. Uh, and that kind of hap thing happens over and over. So there you have uh, preaching the gospel, persecution, spreading, people spread out, they leave because of persecution, and when they go, they take the gospel, uh, and then you see growth. They go somewhere, they preach the gospel, uh, people respond to the gospel, and the church grows. 
the earliest Christian expansion was mostly the witness of the Jewish believers who were present at Pentecost. And so you had these Jewish believers, they were dispersed from Jerusalem. Uh, a lot of these people had traveled to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, and now they're going back. Um, and when they go, they take the gospel with them. Um, and I'll come back to that point later. Uh, so all of these Jewish Christians are, are fleeing Jerusalem. They're going, they're taking the gospel with them. And then the mother church, the church at Jerusalem, is basically approving everything that's going on. Um, but then about halfway through the book of Acts, something changes. The first part of the book of Acts, you see all of the apostles going to the synagogues. They're going to the Jews. Um, but about halfway through the book of Acts, it shifts its focus to Paul. Paul is converted. You'll remember the story. Um, he's present when Stephen is stoned. Um, and then he's traveling to Damascus. Jesus confronts him. Paul believes. And then his life is totally changed. Paul, again, goes to synagogues. But Paul is taking the gospel and he sees his ministry really as a ministry to the Gentiles. And so what you see happening, not only in the book of Acts, but even through church history, is the church is becoming less and less Jewish uh, and more and more Gentile, uh, even to the point of today. How many Jews are in here? Yeah, we're all Gentiles. Um, that's not to say that that Jews aren't believers today. Uh, there are Jewish believers, but the majority of the church is Gentile. Um, again, you can look at, if you've turned back, probably you have Paul's missionary journeys. Um, so Paul takes the gospel uh, to Asia Minor. He takes the gospel to, um, to Rome, to Corinth. Um, eventually he gets to Rome. We see that at the end of the book of Acts. Uh, Paul's goal, however, is to make it to Spain. Um, we're not sure if he does. There are some church traditions that claim that Paul did make it to Spain. Um, but obviously the, the Bible doesn't tell us that. And, and there is a, something a, a little bit interesting. I'm going to come back to the apostles a little bit later when I start talking about it spreads ge geographically. Um, and so let me just wait because I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, so the church uh, the church spreads ethnically. Uh, secondly, the church spreads socially. Another way to look at the spread of Christianity is to look at the dynamics that happen of the basically the people who are believing, who are becoming part of the church. Um, early in church history, uh, and you see this in the New Testament, the majority of people who believed were common people, poor people. And you'll have to remember, it's, it's, it's hard for us as Americans to think this way because we, we don't have the rigid social class structure um, that the Romans had. Um, and so just remember that Rome was very rigid in its class structures. Uh, and so as, I, as we go through this. So 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul says to the church at Corinth, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Um, again, the majority of the church, the early church especially, was made up of more common poor people. 
Um, in fact, one opponent, not one, a lot of opponent, opponents of Christianity early pointed this out um, as a bad thing. So you have Celsus, who was an early opponent, mockingly said that the Christian message was this, let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible come near. And he goes on, by the fact that Christians admit these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and the stupid, only slaves, women, and little children. So a lot of the uh, opponents of Christianity in the early church used this um, as a critique of Christianity and why it should not be accepted. And what's interesting is the early apologists didn't deny this. Um, they didn't say, no, you're wrong. Look at, look at uh, brother so-and-so. He's, you know, he's in the Roman council. <laughs> uh, they didn't deny this. Uh, uh, they uh, responded in different ways. Um, it really, it's remarkable about Christianity because you have, in a, in a situation where there's a very rigid class structure, you have people from all walks of life, from all classes, coming together as brothers and sisters. You have slaves who are considered to be equal in the body of Christ uh, with wealthy people. Um, that was a big deal for this culture. Um, that was really incomprehensible for the Roman culture. Uh, not only that, uh, and, I, and I'm kind of getting a little bit off here, um, but the fact that you had women who were considered in the body of Christ as equal. Um, that was unique too, and you see that in Celsus's comments. Um, but really, I think the remarkable thing is slaves being accepted, as, not only accepted as members, but participating equally in the body of Christ. In fact, I came across a story um, of a former slave becoming the bishop of Rome in the third century. Um, and I don't know all the details of that. I just remember reading something about that. Um, so that would be an example of a slave rising to become you know, an elder in a church, really the leader of the church in Rome. Um, if that account is true. Uh, Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, which kind of summarizes this point, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no female or no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Over time, however, Christianity would grow and it would, it would start to, you would start to see, and there's evidences in church history, that it started to grow among the more elite classes um, and especially you have, when Constantine takes over, obviously you have a lot of the elite class um, become members of the body of Christ. So it grows socially, or it spreads socially. Lastly, the church spreads geographically, and this is where you'll really need your map. First of all, the church spreads to the west. Again, we see this with Paul's ministry. Uh, Paul's going to take the gospel uh, to the island of Cyprus, uh, several cities in Asia Minor, to Greece, to Rome, and then perhaps even Spain. Uh, and let me, maybe this is a good point to talk about. I'm going to mention some of the apostles. Um, we don't know exactly what happened to all of them, and church history or tradition at this point is a little bit fuzzy because there's a lot of contradicting things. Part of that is due to um, 
a lot of the early churches in major cities wanted to claim an apostle as their founder. And so, um, so they'll claim, you know, for example, that, um, you know, Paul made it to Spain or, or what have you. Um, but there's, other than just those claims by the church, sometimes there's not a lot of evidence to support it. So I think the things that I'm going to mention this morning, there's some uh, pretty good evidence to believe it. Um, but we do know that Paul made it to Rome. Uh, there is a chance he made it to Spain, if you're looking at your map. It's a pretty big area, so you're starting to see uh, uh, the growth of the church spread beyond just Asia Minor, um, Palestine, and then down around where Egypt is in the first century, and then uh, even into the second century, it's spreading up um, to Germania, uh, even Britain, Scotland. Um, by the end of the first century, Asia Minor was the center of Christianity, so now the center of Christianity has moved from Jerusalem, and then now it moves up to the north. Uh, by the end of the second century, Christianity had spread to Italy and Gaul. Uh, Gaul is sort of Europe over there, um, like, like France, um, that area. There was a Christian center in Germania and, different, and in different parts of Spain in the second century. Um, so the church is definitely spreading west. Um, and then I have the church spread south, which I guess that's, I guess you could look at it a couple of different ways. So <laughs> spread south and then west. Uh, so there's a tradition that claims that Mark established the church in Alexandria. Alexandria would become a, a key city in the, in the church. Uh, so there's a tradition that Mark established that church, and that's uh, probably right, um, just some other examples, things that probably aren't correct. Scotland claims Andrew. Um, so does Russia. Uh, so uh, Andrew was either a very gifted and active guy, <laughs> speaking a lot of different languages, uh, or, again, you just don't know uh, what the truth is. Um, we do know for sure just kind of as an aside, this didn't moving through the outline that uh, Peter was in Rome and died there as a martyr under Nero. We know that for sure. Um, uh, we don't know. There's tradition that say uh, Paul was beheaded, but we don't know with certainty. Um, later, back to your outline, later Christianity spreads further south. So Christianity now has moved down to Alexandria, northern Africa. It's moving across. It also is moving south. Uh, there's evidence of Christianity in Ethiopia and Nubia, uh, even down to kind of where Sudan is today. Um, so that's the church spreading south. And something that's not uh, often pointed out, uh, something that I you know, came across that I found interesting was that the church spread east. Uh, not that that's surprising when we knew that, but there is some evidence that the church grew faster to the east than it did to the west, um, which you don't hear a whole lot about. Um, and again, a lot of this we're not sure about, but, uh, so I'll just give you what, what we feel pretty confident in. Um, what we know for sure are likely uh, is that Thomas went to India uh, and established a church there. Um, so... And, and 
you have, again, I'm focusing on the apostles, but, but one of the things I wanted to remind us is, is that the apostles did spread the gospel, um, but the majority of the spread of the gospel was not the apostles. Um, it was everyday believers uh, who were taking the gospel with them. As, uh, you think about uh, soldiers in the army. They were traveling around. They were moved around, and they would take the gospel with them. You had merchants who would travel. You had people who were moving around because of uh, just spreading out because of uh, persecution. But the majority of the spread of church was not because uh, the apostle Paul or Thomas. It was because everyday believers were traveling and taking the gospel. Uh, for example, when, when we, we think of Paul as establishing the church at Rome, uh, but, he, but you'll remember the church of Rome was there before Paul got there. Uh, and probably what happened was some of the Jews who were at Pentecost went back to Rome and took the gospel and started the church. Um, so, uh, again, the apostles were important, uh, but there's countless nameless Christians who took the gospel all over the world, and that's the majority of what we see. Um, there's other evidence of the church spreading east. You have probably the first church uh, building was in the east. Um, you have what some people, and I don't remember exactly where this is, but there is evidence that the first Christian king was not um, Constantine. It was one of the kings in the east. Uh, I guess I shouldn't tell you that without knowing more details, but uh, <laughs> you can do some research. Uh, uh, but anyway, so the church is spreading. Uh, it's, it's spreading geographically just as it is socially and, um, and ethnically. So the church is spreading, again, because of the fullness of the time. God had prepared, he had orchestrated events, and now the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit is being spread throughout the church. Um, my plan is next week to start looking at the early church in, in relationship to the state um, because you're gonna, what you're going to see is some persecution. So we'll deal with persecution. We'll look at some of the apologists, um, the people who are responding to persecution. Um, but the church is growing. It's growing because people are taking the gospel with them. People are debating, they're, they're carrying ideas with them when they go, and they're uh, spreading the gospel, they're preaching the gospel. And again, I hope that's an encouragement to us all. It's, it's, we're all missionaries, and I love the fact that Calvary lists all of us as ministers on the bulletin, at least it used to, I think it still does. Um, yeah, you, we have the elders, we have people who work here, uh, but we are the ministers of this church. Uh, and I think that's what we see as we see the church spreading. Um, so let's pray that we continue to do that as we live our lives faithfully before the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for this time. Uh, Lord, I pray that it's encouragement uh, to our hearts, uh, not only to see that your providential hand is guiding history even now, that you have a purpose, you have a, an end in sight, uh, the glorious return of our Savior. And uh, Father, I pray that as we go about our business this week, whether uh, we're at the grocery store or we're at home or we're at work, wherever we are, Lord, we're just aware of the fact that we are to be witnesses, um, 
the great commission was not only given to the apostles, it was given to all of us. Uh, Lord, may we be busy about that work. Lord, thank you for this time. I pray that you prepare our hearts for worship this morning, even prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. And uh, Father, may we uh, be faithful to your call upon our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.